there's this sort of, you know, phrase that floats around in respectful parenting circles of, you know, all behavior is communication, which I think is great and is absolutely true. And it's also missing a piece, right? All behavior is communication of what? Why is my child doing this thing? (laughs) And so the thing that they are trying to communicate is what is their unmet need? And when we can understand their unmet need, we can find a way to meet both our needs and their needs. I've been listening to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast for years. If you are a frequent listener, you've probably heard me mention it before. And that is why when I heard that Jen Lumenlon was coming out with a new book, I definitely had to invite her to come on Securely Attached to discuss her research-based parenting approach. In her book, Parenting Beyond Power, Jen explores how we can replace punitive discipline methods with empathetic listening, understanding emotions, and problem-solving with our children. By doing so, we not only create a more harmonious family life in the short term, but also contribute to a better future for all of us. Join us as we dive deep into the transformative ideas presented in Jen's book and learn how they can help us raise children who advocate for themselves and who treat others with profound respect. It is a conversation you won't want to miss. So here we go. Power struggles in parenting can be a real challenge, but they don't have to be a constant source of friction and frustration. Join me Tuesday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern for my free 60-minute masterclass, From Battles to Bonding, Overcoming Power Struggles, to learn precisely why the strategies you're using to either avoid or win a power struggle just aren't working and why they may never work, the real problem that leads to power struggles in the first place and how to break out of this trap, my exact framework for mapping out your child's challenging behaviors, and how to create a personalized toolbox for your unique child and the specific power struggles that you find yourself in over and over again. So if you are looking for strategies to increase your child's cooperation, decrease the number of times you hear the word no, and finally feel like you're nailing this whole parenting thing, even when it's messy, go to drsarahbren.com forward slash power struggles to grab your free seat for this live masterclass on September 19th. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash power struggles. I'll see you there. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, everyone. I am I'm really, really excited about today's guest because she has been in my ears since before my son was born. I started listening to her podcast when I was pregnant with my first. He's almost six. So I'm thrilled. Jen Lumenlon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And you said my name right the first time without prompting. <laughs> well, I've been listening to it. I've been listening to it. <laughs> Usually it takes several tries for folks to get it the first time. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, so the reason why I've been listening to you is you have a phenomenal podcast called Your Parenting Mojo. You have a book coming out called Parenting Beyond Power. 
amazing book. And I'm, I'm just really, really excited to talk to you about your perspective on just parenting, your, the work that you do, how you got into it, power dynamics and relationships, because we know that that's so like, that's such an Achilles heel in parent child relationships is that power dynamic. So first, maybe just for people who aren't aware of the work that you do, as well as I am, can you just introduce <laughs> yourself and kind of talk a, like, briefly just about like how you got into this work? Because it's an interesting path. Mm, yeah. And and I apologize to your listeners uh, who may notice that I sound as though I have a cold. I do have a cold. <laughs> I don't always quite sound quite as gravelly as this. Um, so yeah, I started the podcast. It's got to be over seven years ago now and, and basically started it because I had my daughter, she's a little over nine, and I realized I had no idea how to be a parent. <laughs> I spent weeks and weeks iterating my birth plan, figuring, oh, you know, the rest of it, what happens for the next 18 years, I'll figure that out when it gets here. Mm-hmm. And so she was born and I have no idea what I'm doing. I realized my parenting role models were not necessarily ones that <laughs> I want to kind of carry through into a lot of aspects of my relationship with her. And so I'd always looked to scientific research to help me understand things. And I thought, oh, well, you know, here's an area where research can help me. And so I was getting these emails from websites that shall remain unnamed, but they're really big. And they Mm -hmm. would send out emails with subject lines like five ways to tell if your child has a developmental delay. (laughs) And I was like, that's just clickbait. (laughs) And if they ever did look at a study, they would look at one study and they'd say, okay, this study says that growth mindset is super important. And so here are 15 ways to give your child a growth mindset without ever looking to understand whether that study confirmed or refuted the previous 30 years of research on this topic. Mm -hmm. And So I thought, okay, well, how can I know that I'm not missing anything? And so uh, I've since learned that what autistic people do when they're interested in something is they go and get a degree in it. (laughs) But I didn't know I was autistic at the time. So I went and got a master's in psychology focused on child development and then another one in education. (laughs) And I was like, well, why would I learn all this stuff just for me? I'm guessing there are other people out there who want to learn this too. And so I started the podcast as a way of sharing what I was learning with other people. And yeah, we've got over... 3 million downloads at this point. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we've been going for a while and I'd always looked really critically at things like sample sizes. And if your research is being done at a campus outside of an urban center at noon on a Tuesday and you've got eight participants, then you're going to get a certain demographic. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you, you sort of extrapolate your results as if they're applicable to everybody in the world when that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. And so I'd always looked at those kinds of things, but increasingly I was uh, really kind of on a journey to understand my uh, my white privilege, which I had no idea about before. Mm-hmm. I was listening to the How to Get Away with Parenting podcast, which isn't being published anymore, but the the host is a, now a friend of mine in uh, Oakland. She's a black podcaster. And she she said in her podcast, you know, a, a black parent of a black child can't go into a grocery store with their own food because they mm. might, uh, someone might think they'd stolen it. <laughs> and oh. the parent of a black boy, you know, a toddler might be afraid that their toddler would have a meltdown in a public place because there's nothing less safe to white people than an out of control black boy. And 
you know, I knew what racism was. I knew what structural racism was. I had white privilege and I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> and so that was really kind of what sparked the process of, of, uh, of writing the book really. Um, and you know, it had lots of, lots of, uh, twists and turns along the way, but that was really what sparked it. Yeah. But that's a really profound realization. And I like confront that a lot too, as a white, a white parent, but also a white psychologist talking about parenthood and child development and recognizing that, yeah, the research that most of what I'm talking about is based off of, while I believe it's empirically sound, mm-hmm. it's been done in specific, with specific populations and not always representative of the, of the, not just the global culture, but even American culture. Yeah. And like, it's interesting because I actually feel more confident about what we know about attachment research because it has been done globally Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the other stuff that we're talking about in research, when we're talking about different clinical um, models like CBT and DBT and other types of like clinical treatments, those are less studied in a wider range of population. Mm-hmm. Um, but this other yeah. piece that's so significant to me is that part of like when I'm talking about what it's like to be a parent and talking about the challenges and giving parent strategies – yeah, there are things that I talk about that um, that other cultural factors play into that could scare a parent mm-hmm. to doing these things. And like, we don't talk about that enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, firstly, on your, your point about, um, you know, the way things are studied, it's kind of funny. So, so I don't look at my reviews very often, but every once in a while, I look at my iTunes reviews and they'll see reviews saying, you know, there's a clear liberal feminist bias here. Uh, you know, the, I, I, I want the unbiased research. <laughs> I don't want the bias that this podcaster is putting on the research. And to me, that's a really fundamental misunderstanding of the research because there is so much bias baked into the research from the way the researcher asked the question in the first place to the sample that they picked to how many, you know, how many people that they are doing the research on to the methods they use in their statistical analysis to the way that they write up the paper. There is bias baked into the process every single step of the way. But because we all grew up in school learning that science is objective, <laughs> mm-hmm. then, um, yeah, we, we sort of have this, this fake vision that science is telling us exactly the way things are as if there was no person in, in between interpreting it for us. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that's really important to understand. And then, yeah, on, on the idea of sort of different ideas uh, being available, being appropriate to different people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's on us to learn more about. And frankly, you know, it's, it's a failure on the part of white people everywhere when, uh, you know, I've heard from a, an indigenous person, an indigenous parent, that she is worried if her child shows up at school looking tired because someone might report her family to child protective services. So, you know, I, my daughter went through a phase of wanting, she, she used to say, I want to feel the fluffy, <laughs> which meant she wanted to feel fuzzy clothes like, against her skin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she wouldn't want to get changed out of her pajamas in the morning for that reason. And so, of course, the obvious solution to me is to send her to preschool in her pajamas. And, and no fear whatsoever. It never crossed my mind at that point that, that anyone would think I was, you know, parenting inappropriately in any 
anyway. And, and there are plenty of parents for whom that would be a really dangerous thing to do. Um, and because a white parent, a white teacher may misunderstand what's happening, right? What I was trying to do, and we're going to talk a lot about needs, I think, was to understand mm-hmm. my child's needs and also meet my needs, right? My need is to get out the door with some sense of ease and harmony in the morning. <laughs> I don't care what she's wearing. And that a black parent can't do the same thing because they're afraid of what a white parent or white teacher might do in response is a failure on my part, on your part, on the part of you know white people everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of why I wrote this book so that we can hopefully start to create a world where everyone belongs and, and not just, you know, have it be so focused around white people and whiteness. Right. And I, and I love that. And I think the book is also really accessible because I, I think, I think that some people could like the people who might be writing those reviews on your podcast that say like, Oh, this is like so liberal or so feminist or so like, I don't think that the messaging in the book is really one-sided or highly agenda-driven. Like, I don't think it feels partisan. It it feels very much like, okay, how do we look at the, the power dynamic in a parent-child relationship from all these different lenses and like objectively kind of gather the data, which is kind of why I love the way you do the work you do. <laughs> sort of objectively. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I will say that there is sort of a, I, I didn't write it with a, you know, political idea and that I'm going to convince you of, of sort of a certain mindset. But I think particularly since I finished the book, I've, I've uncovered more work. And I'm thinking particularly of Jonathan Haidt's work, The the Righteous Mind and George Lakoff's work, Moral Politics, where they talk about the connection between political ideas and parenting. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're, that liberals, you know, liberal parents particularly seem to care about care for others and, um, and, and treating others fairly. And those ideas are sort of tied up in what it means to be a liberal person and a liberal parent. And so, of course, that translates into how you want to treat your children. There are a lot of other parents in the world for whom those are not the top priority. And frankly, who think that white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism are the natural way of the world and how things should be. And that represents, you know, power from God, somebody on high. And that's translated down through the president, through the father and the family. And so, yeah, so I'm not trying to convince anyone of a particular way, but it's more that, you know, if you have values related to respect for others, for care, for fairness in the world, that you really want the world to be a place where everyone can show up in their full humanity, then one of the reasons that you may be experiencing some tension is because conservatives have been very successful at controlling the agenda in our country. And that translates to the ways that we parent, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because a a controlling parenting method is sort of how most of us were raised. It's certainly how I was raised. It's how most of the parents I work with were raised. And and so when we, we hold different values, but yet we had this modeling of this really kind of top-down patriarchal power structure. It's mm-hmm. like there's this huge tension in us of, I know this is important, but I don't know how to do anything about this. <laughs> how, can I, how can I reconcile these two things? So, yeah. yeah, so that's how I see the, the, the politics showing up in the book. No, I think that makes so much sense. And I think going back to this idea to go to the needs of the child and the needs of the parent, right? Like, we are always, I think as parents, whether you, like no matter what your political agenda is, 
within the family system, I think we're always dealing with what, what, you know, what we sometimes refer to in psychology as a ghost in the nursery, like intergenerational presence of all the parenting that came before us. Right. So when I'm parenting my child, it's not just me parenting my child. It's the, my parents, how they parented me and how that comes through and my parents' parents, how they parented them and how that comes through. So it's like, go, it's much, much bigger than like the today's issues. Right. And I think whenever we're looking at power struggles or getting our needs met or balancing that with getting our kids' needs met or teaching them our values, being able to understand how all these previous generations are standing in the room with us Mm -hmm. helps a lot. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about like, you know, if you're looking at a power struggle in a parent-child relationship or just a power dynamic in a Mm parent-child relationship – how do we view that in terms of like empowering parents to hold both, right? I hold my power. I hold my child's power. I, I, how do we get out of the power struggle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that that's really where seeing the needs helps. And that's really the crux of parenting beyond power is, is learning how to see the needs underneath difficult behavior. Because when our child is doing something that is driving us up the wall, it seems like the thing to do is to get them to stop doing that thing (laughs) and to instead do the thing that we want them to do. And so there's this sort of, you know, phrase that floats around in respectful parenting circles of, you know, all behavior is communication. Mm -hmm. which I think is great and is absolutely true. And it's also missing a piece, right? All behaviors, communication of what, why is my child doing this thing? (laughs) What are they communicating? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And so the thing that they are trying to communicate is what is their unmet need? And when we can understand their unmet need, we can find a way to meet both of their needs, you know, our needs and their needs. And so I guess I'm thinking back to an example of a, a parent that I coached in a, a public workshop a couple of years ago. And uh, I think she had like th- maybe three children and, you know, getting out the door in the morning is a big struggle. The older one in particular is re- resisting. And I, I think the oldest one is probably six or seven and, you know, should be able to get dressed by themselves and should be able to brush some teeth, their teeth by themselves. And why won't they just do it? <laughs> and so it seems like the thing to fix is how do I get my kid to get dressed? How do I get my kid to brush their teeth? And so we start digging into this a little bit and going back to your example of, uh, you know, all of the people who are standing next to you in the nursery. I asked the parent, you know, what, what was it like for you getting out in the morning? And there was this silence and the tears start to fall, right? And and this parent, uh, I think, had had a mother who was working nonstop, a father who was an alcoholic, who was not around, Um and, and she, I think, had four younger siblings and it was her job to get everybody ready in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so when she has this six-year-old, there's this huge tension in her because on one hand, it's like, yeah, you're six and I want you to have these feelings and to be authentically you. And I can see you're struggling right now. And on the other hand, there's but I would have been punished for this, right? Somebody would have beat me for this. It was my job to make all this happen. And why can't you just make it happen too? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there was this huge struggle going on inside this parent, which is why it was so hard to figure out what to do. 
And so, of course, what we came up with is, can we work to heal ourselves? Can we start to understand why this is so hard for us, right? To hold space for ourselves, to understand, yeah, I I wanted to be a kid too, and I didn't get the chance to do that. Mm. So can can I start to heal myself so that I can show up for my child in a way that I want to show up for them firstly, and in a way that I wish somebody had been able to show up for me, which may well look like sometimes helping a six-year-old who is perfectly capable of getting dressed to get dressed because that six-year-old has a need for connection in the mornings. Mm. And if we can see that need for connection and get past the societal expectation of you should be able to do this by now, why can't you do this by now? My life would be easier if you could do this by now. Then what we can see is that need for connection. If we meet that need for connection, chances are our child is willingly going to get dressed. And then the whole rest of our morning runs more smoothly. And then we meet our needs for calm and ease and peace and harmony in the morning. And then we can get out the door in the way that we want to get out the door as well. Yes. No, that makes a ton of sense. It's super aligned with the way I view a lot of this stuff. <laughs> it's interesting because it's like, you know, there's so many paths to get here. And I think a lot of it doesn't matter what what orientation you take to get here. It's about saying, okay, when we look at power and we, which inevitably makes us look at behavior, mm-hmm. that's going to get us stuck in a loop yeah. of trading power for behaviors and trading power for behaviors and mm-hmm. asserting power to get a behavior. And, but what you're suggesting is there's a paradigm shift. There's a different thing to focus on altogether. It has nothing to do with behaviors. But when we get there, when we meet that emotional need, mm-hmm. the behaviors follow. Right. Which yeah. is like, oh. <laughs> and, and this has impacts in our family and in the wider world, right? And, the, and this is sort of the, the second half of the story as to why I wrote the book, right? And I, so I start learning about my own white privilege. I start digging into patriarchy, into capitalism on the podcast, you know, all these really big topics. And at the same time, I'm running a membership community and the parents are asking me, how do I get my kid to brush their teeth? How do I get my kid to get dressed? How do I get my kid to stay in bed? Mm -hmm. And it was like, I'm on these two parallel paths of huge ideas on the podcast and the daily struggles. And it took me so long to figure out these are not parallel paths. These are connected, right? These are Mm -hmm. intimately connected. And we can have so many conversations with our children about how they should treat other people, about how we want them to treat other people. But if you've ever sworn around your child, you know that if you tell them not to swear and then you swear around them, (laughs) they are probably going to end up swearing. They, They tend to learn more by watching us, by interacting with us than they do from uh, from what we say to them. So if we're telling them, you know, be nice to everybody, um, that, and then we are turning around and forcing them to brush their teeth and forcing them to, you know, to change their behavior, to do what we want them to do, then the lesson they take is that a bigger, more powerful person can use their power over another person to get them to do what they want to do. And I mean, frankly, I see white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, they're all about power. They're all about I have more power than you do, and I'm going to use that power. And my needs are more important than yours, and my needs deserve to get met, and yours don't. And so what we're doing is 
we're, we're making family life dramatically easier today because when my child's need is met, they stop resisting me, <laughs> right? They stop digging their heels in and pushing back at everything I say, because when your needs are met, it feels amazing. It feels great. You want to collaborate with somebody who's helping to meet your needs. And then also we're giving them so much practice in how to be in relationships with somebody where I can see that you have a need and I can see that I have a need and I have a lot of practice in figuring out how we can both meet our needs. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see these big social challenges, like breaking down from the inside as we start to you know, raise children who have practice of doing that in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm also thinking, cause I, I work with a lot of parents and I know, like, I know there are people listening to this that are like, but my kid has to brush their teeth. Like if they got to, got to make them brush sure. their teeth. And yeah. they, if I, if I don't make them, they'll never do it. Their teeth yep. would just rot. Or if mm -hmm. I never took away video games, they would never stop and their brain would rot. Like they're uh -huh. like, how, and I, I mean, I have an idea of how you're going to answer this question, but <laughs> how do we move away from this power differential without being permissive? Right. Yes. Yeah. That's so important because a, one of the key ideas in the book, and I think that this is often left out in respectful parenting discussions, is that you, the parent, have needs. I work with so many parents who the, the first time I, you know, they learned this from me, they're like, what? I, ha I have needs? <laughs> because they once resisted their parents as well, right? We can see that resistance as an expression of an unmet need. And so when we resisted our parents, they were like, you better stop doing that. <laughs> you better forget that you had those needs, put them in a box, pretend they don't exist and do the things that I am telling you to do. Right? That's how we became people pleasers. A lot of particularly feminine oriented folks, right? Feminine socialized folks became people pleasers for that reason. And so what I'm saying is we, we are not going to be permissive parents. Absolutely not. Uh, and what sort of saves us from being permissive parents is that recognition that I have a need and that that deserves to be met just as much as my child's need does. So mm -hmm. how does that show up in some practical examples, right? Well, I mean, I would start by asking, why doesn't your child want to brush their teeth? And mostly when I work with parents, they kind of look at me and they're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Parents will say, yeah, I've tried all the things I've tried all the toothbrushes and all the toothpaste and all the whatever. But if you don't know why your child is resisting brushing their teeth, then you're basically throwing spaghetti at the wall, trying to see if something will stick because you don't, because you don't understand what their need is. You're coming up with endless strategies to try to meet a need that you don't understand, <laughs> which is very, very difficult. Yeah. Whereas when you can understand what their need is, then you can propose strategies that you know, help to meet their need. So example of, of how I've seen that play out recently, I work with a parent of a toddler who's not even verbal yet, right? Not even mm -hmm. able to articulate what their need is. And uh, the, the parent was finally able to understand, I mean, she was essentially kind of holding him down to brush his teeth. Uh, would start out with the hand behind his head <laughs> and the toothbrush going in the front. And then when he resisted and resisted, she would basically hold him down. And, you know, 
I'm thinking about somebody putting something in my mouth. You, you can probably have some empathy for your child if you let your child brush your teeth one time or even let another adult brush your teeth one time and just see what it's like to have somebody else pushing something around in your mouth and not having any control over that process. And now imagine doing that with a hand behind your head so you can't move, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And and so that child, once, she, once the parent took the hand away, which the parent assumed that they needed because otherwise the child would run away, the child is actually willing to stand and have their teeth brushed. They just wanted to have some sense of autonomy over the process, right? Some sense of, I am, I get to choose to be here and how this thing happens. And that it's not that you're imposing this on me, mm -hmm. right? Getting dressed in the morning. My daughter would hate being cold in the morning. She wouldn't, she would refuse to get dressed because she didn't want to get cold. And so a strategy that helped to meet her need is getting dressed in front of the heater. But if your child's need is for connection, getting dressed in front of the heater is irrelevant. They don't care. <laughs> so it, understanding your child's need is so critical. And then most often I find that parents are trying to meet needs for harmony, for ease, for peace, for collaboration. And so when you can meet your child's needs, then your needs get met just by extension. You don't even have to do mm -hmm. anything extra. It's just, mm -hmm. It just happens along at the same time. Yeah. That's always nice when they're double duty like that. It is. <laughs> I was having the hardest time getting my son to get dressed in the morning mm -hmm. and get downstairs. Mm -hmm. And in kind of checking in and sort of figuring out why was it that he was so resistant and why was I like finding myself getting increasingly more frustrated by repeating the same directive over and over and over again, I it clicked that like that playfulness was what mm -hmm. was missing. Mm -hmm. And now we play games, like different games, but mostly just like, can I sing a song faster than you can get dressed kind of <laughs> games. Uh -huh. And he loves it. And it's not because I'm like tricking, he's six, like he's almost six. Like it's not, he yeah. doesn't, he's not being like, it's not the, okay, I'm going to time you ready, go. Like that yeah. doesn't work on him anymore, you know, because yeah. he's not two, <laughs> right? But he's six. He knows that he's cooperating, by mm -hmm. doing this, right? There is an awareness in him that he is cooperating. It's not me tricking him into cooperating, but making it fun is helping him feel like he has my attention in the mornings and it's pleasant and positive. And for a little while there, it wasn't so much because I was getting so frustrated telling him to get dressed. Mm -hmm. He wasn't listening. And so, yeah, it's in doing the song, you know, in, it does cost me more effort for that, I don't know, three minutes that it takes mm -hmm. for us to get ready together in the morning. Okay. But I know a lot of times, parents, when I suggest things that are a little bit more like emotionally and physically labor intensive at the, at the start, they're like, that's so much work. They just need to be doing it by themselves. And I get that. Like, mm -hmm. I would love for my son to just do it by himself. And I know he can. But I also recognize that me putting the three minutes into it in the morning pays dividends in me not having a fight with him, which costs me 15, 20 minutes on mm -hmm. the back end. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the cost-benefit analysis or the labor that you have to put into it and thinking <laughs> about it, like, yeah, it does. It, it is more work for me, which maybe doesn't meet my need in that moment, but it meets my bigger, higher order need. Mm-hmm having, like you said, the harmony and the ease in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And I, I think 
it, we can also help to to take a sort of a macro level perspective here. And uh, so what you're doing, you're essentially, you've uncovered that he has needs for kind of joy and play in the morning and for connection with you. And when you meet those needs, he's willing to collaborate with you. Mm-hmm. And that meets your needs for peace and calm and ease in the morning. And so previously he was using what we could, I mean, in some ways it's a skillful strategy. In some ways it's an unskillful strategy of not doing what you were asking him to do, because then you would ask him again. And sometimes we see children doing things like that because they don't want our quote unquote negative attention, but he was getting some kind of connection with you every time you repeated yourself. (laughs) And he would prefer that it wouldn't be the negative kind but he'll take that over no attention, which is what he would get if he was doing it by himself. Right. And so I think it's really important to, to see these sort of unskillful strategies. And, and very often we see that when one kid is hitting another kid, right? It's like, why won't you just stop hitting the, their, you know, their sibling? And what, what we often see is, well, what happens when they hit their sibling? You're on them <laughs> immediately. They have your attention and they'd rather have your positive attention, but they'll take your negative attention over no attention. Mm -hmm. So can we see that as a need for connection and meet that need for connection, even though it's being requested in sort of an unskillful way? Um, And I've referred to this example so many times. I've actually had a friend say, I should get t-shirts made. Um, And I'll I'll tell you what the t-shirt is going to say at the end. But I, um, I, I got really attached to the idea that I didn't want to unload the dishwasher in our house anymore. I was sick of doing it. It was a three minute task that I could do while my oatmeal was heating up. It was not that big of a deal, but I was tired of doing it every single day. Mm -hmm. And one day I picked a fight with my husband about it because he swans out of the bedroom at 9.30 in the morning and he makes his, you know, 20 minute coffee routine and sits down with his toast and his Instagram. And I'm like, you do not appreciate me. (laughs) You are not seeing that I've been up for three hours and I've unloaded the dishwasher and fed our daughter and done two hours of work. You know, this is not okay. And so I picked this unskillful strategy of picking a fight with him because I had an unmet need for connection. Mm. And so, right, and, and collaboration. I want to know that we're on the same team. And there are so many ways that we could meet that need in me, right, for of being on the same team. And one of those ways is that he could unload the dishwasher first thing in the morning. And so that the T-shirt, my friends are saying, should, should say it's not about the dishwasher. <laughs> because it's really not. <laughs> and so when, when we look at our children's, quote unquote, difficult behavior, we can sort of think to ourselves, it's not about the dishwasher. It's not about whatever it seems to be about in this moment. What need is my child trying to meet by doing this thing that's driving me up the wall? And can I help them to meet that need? Because when I can, chances are there will be less resistance. There will be much more ease and harmony for me. Yes. I love that so, so much. You know, I, I, I love the way that you put that. And I think too, like, I, I'm wondering if you could share some ideas for parents on like, concretely, what are some strategies for identifying the various needs our kids have that aren't about the dishwasher or aren't about the toothbrush (laughs) or aren't about getting dressed in the morning, right? But are really about other things. Like what are those, what are those strategies for identifying that accurately for our kid Mm -hmm. in the moment? Yeah. And especially when our child is not verbal, (laughs) 
Right. So, yeah. So I actually have a quiz on my website to help parents with this. So if you go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash quiz, there is a series of 10 questions and it walks you through and they're super easy to answer just about your child's behavior. And it returns a result of what is probably one of your child's top needs. Right. And so for some kids, it might be something like sensory input. So for some kids, if their, their label on their shirt is scratching them, or if the seam on their socks is touching their foot in the wrong way, then everything else falls apart. And once that is set correctly, then everything else goes much better, right? Mm -hmm. So if we know that about our child, we can address those sensory needs, and then we will probably find that everything else gets much easier. And I would say that if it seems as though you have, quote unquote, tried everything, (laughs) then sensory needs are a really good place to look if you haven't looked already. Um, Some other really common needs that I see coming up over and over again are for connection, right? And, And so a lot of parents will say, but we spend so much time together (laughs) and we play together all the time or, but I work all the time and I have four kids. How can I possibly have connection with each one? And so the key is not that you need massive amounts of connection, but that connection be done in a way that really resonates for that child. And Mm -hmm. just to kind of illustrate that, I I don't know if uh, you've ever been in a relationship and this often shows up in sort of cisgender heterosexual partnerships where the female person, Uh, is having a bad day and wants to tell their partner about their bad day. And the partner, the male partner immediately jumps in and says, well, you should do this. (laughs) This is how you can fix it. And the female partner says, but I I don't want you to fix this. I just want you to listen. (laughs) Right. And so we all want to be supported in a certain way. And we have a tendency to support others in the way that we want to be supported. And if we can see what is our child's way that they want to be supported instead of supporting them in the way that we want to support them, right? Maybe their love language is touch or is play or whatever it is, right? Maybe theirs is play and ours is touch and we're all lovey, lovey, lovey all over them. And they're like, but I just want you to play Lego with me. (laughs) So if we can meet them where they are, they're going to be able to receive that connection in a way that they can't when we are doing it from our perspective of what this connection should look like. So, um, so sensory, so connection, a third big one is autonomy, right? I want to be able to make decisions that are really important to me. And, and this brings an example to mind of a parent of, I think a six-year-old who was in Mandarin lessons, who was resisting those Mandarin lessons, refusing to go. And the parent through our conversation realized that she had really been kind of controlling a lot of the aspects of this child's life. And so she backed off from as much of that as she could and said, okay, you get to decide what you have for breakfast. You get to decide what you have for lunch. You get to decide lots and lots of things throughout the day. And we don't always see a one-to-one correlation, but very often when our child's need is for autonomy and we allow them the opportunity to make more decisions, they stop resisting the other stuff. And all of a sudden this child's saying, okay, it's time for Mandarin. Are we ready? (laughs) And off they go. Mm. It makes me think of the needs cupcake that you mentioned in the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was sort of a a late entry that slipped in at the end. And I was looking for a visual way of representing the fact that we're all trying to meet 
a fairly small set of needs over and over again. And you may have noticed a pattern already when, when we're talking about a lot of our child's behavior, right? Very often we're looking for ease, for collaboration, for harmony, for peace in our home. And so if that's my need over and over again, I don't need to look at a list of 50 needs every time things are falling apart and say, which of these needs is it? <laughs> I can kind of know that something in those top three to five is going to be that cherry on top of the cupcake. The needs that I'm trying to meet over and over and over again might be peace collaboration harmony and then in the next layer which started out because i'm english you know it was it was icing but icing's really thin <laughs> so we changed it to american frosting which is much much thicker and so that's your next three to five needs that you're trying to meet over and over again and if you're in a difficult situation you look at your cherry it's like no nah, it's it doesn't seem to be those needs you look at your frosting eh, i'm not sure it's those needs then you can look at the cupcake underneath and see okay you know is it possible that it's one of these other needs. But going through the cherry and the frosting first allows you to consider a much smaller set and say, yes, my need for ease is not being met right now. <laughs> and I want to get that met. How can I imagine ways to meet my need for ease and also help you, child, to meet your need for joy or play or movement or whatever it is you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's so helpful because I think that also just kind of concretizes it and it honors both, right? It's not mm -hmm. just our child's needs, it's ours. Correct. Which yeah. is so important and I feel like gets left out a lot in these conversations around how do I get my child to cooperate? And then we say, okay, well, we have to meet their needs. Okay, well, end of conversation. Like, <laughs> like, but we have to meet our kids' needs while meeting our own needs and while helping our child understand I also have needs. And that collaborative yeah. problem solving that comes out of both of us having needs and being able to talk about that together so valuable for a child. It's so huge. Yeah, it really is. And and I think this links back to an idea that you alluded to earlier on, um, which is that probably 90% of our time, we can find ways to meet both of our needs in, in our relationship. There will be times when we can't we just can't find a way. Maybe it's because, you know, when I grew up, I would have been punished for doing this thing. And I just cannot get my head around the idea of allowing my child to do this. So, um, so we have other tools, right? We have boundaries. I can say, I have a need right now and I wish I can see your need or maybe I can't see your need, but I, I cannot see how I can help you to meet your need and also meet my need. And so I'm going to set a boundary. And particularly for folks socialized as female, that's really hard to do because we learned if you set a boundary, that means I don't love you anymore. <laughs> right? So, so don't ever set boundaries. Don't ever say, I am not willing to do X for you because that communicates that I don't love you. When actually it just communicates, I, I have a need and I'm going to try to meet that need right now. And I wish that I could help you meet your need too. And it's so important for our children to learn how to set boundaries because I mean, what happens when the first time their uh, friend says, if you, don't, if you don't steal that candy from the store, I'm not gonna be your friend anymore. What do we want them to do? Do we want them to be a people pleaser who rolls over and says, yeah, you're, you're saying I should do it. I'm going to go and do it. Or do we want them to be able to check in with themselves and say, you know, that doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't meet my need for honesty, mm -hmm. for authenticity, for integrity. And so I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to set a boundary. And that doesn't mean I don't love you anymore, friend, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Right? That's why it's so important. Between the two. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that kind of makes me think of this other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is like intrinsic motivation, <laughs> this sort of internal compass that we're trying so hard. I think if you, 
you know, if you poll a hundred parents and ask like, why do you discipline the way you do? Why do you teach the things you teach? Why are you, why do you set these particular boundaries? And, you know, I think a lot of them will say, because I want my child to have these values. I want my child to know right from wrong. I want my child to have, you know, you know, to, to be able to be a productive member of society, all those things, fantastic things. I'm in favor of them all, but they (laughs) come from what I believe is going to have to come from an internal compass, Mm -hmm. not because someone said I have to do this. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of the strategies that we use to parent and that are focused on behavior and to your point, probably actually focused on a more deeper level on power don't necessarily teach that critical thinking, that attunement with our internal compass. They teach obedience. Mm-hmm. How do we get out of that? Trick? <laughs> like, how do we, how, what do we need to do to sort of reframe how we teach those values and how we teach that connection to our internal compass? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of different approaches depending on the issue. So I, I have a, a learning membership for folks who are interested in supporting their children's uh, intrinsic love of learning. And we have a module on critical thinking. And so I, I dove pretty deeply into it there and kind of came up with this sort of paradox, right? Like we want our children to develop critical thinking skills, but there are some values we hold that we want them to just hold our values. <laughs> and so, you know, issues related to race is that that's where that comes up for me, right? Like I, I want you to think critically about issues related to race. And also I kind of want you to have my values on this because <laughs> if you come out, uh, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to join the KKK, then that that's kind of not going to be okay with me. <laughs> so, um, so, so we are in a bit of a paradox and the, the way that I choose to navigate that is to say, yes, I, you, you get to think critically about this, but I am not going to be shy about sharing what is my perspective on this. So you are, you are never going to be in any doubt about what is okay with me here. And you still get a chance to evaluate that yourself, but you will very clearly know where I stand. And that that's on the issues uh, like issues related to race that are very, very, very important to me. And uh, and, and that also comes up, um, you know, in conversations in about books that we're reading. We don't censor any books, but we we point these things out, right? When, when it's the dark-skinned character who's always the evil character, we point that out. <laughs> when... Um, we're reading books where the father is, is telling the child what to do and, and not giving the child any alternative. We point out the patriarchal power structures. So, um, so that's how I, I navigate it related to sort of big social issues. But then there are a whole lot of other issues that are just kind of more about general values, right? I want my child to learn respect and the, the value of hard work and those kinds of things. And you know, I, in, in some ways I think back to my own childhood where I, there were a lot of things I didn't love to do, right? I didn't like tidying up when I was a kid. (laughs) I didn't like hiking when I was a kid. I I remember vividly being told by my stepmother, uh, when we went on a long hike in, in Wales to, we were trying to get to the top of Ben Nevis, which is the tallest mountain in England and Wales. And, we ended up turning around because my father was afraid of heights and, and my sister and I complained and my stepmother said, you complained all the way up and now you're complaining because we're turning around. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't like hiking and now I love to hike. <laughs> 
Um, and, and it's, it's one of the, the things that I love to do most and that I did with my daughter when she was a baby. And so I, I don't think we can necessarily catastrophize in the way that a lot of parents that I work with do and say, well, if they don't learn this now, if they don't get this skill now, it will never happen, right? They will Mm -hmm. never learn how to do this. If we can see this is just what's happening right now. And if we think back to when we, we were children, what was it that we most wanted from our parents. And, and let's make this not a rhetorical question. So Sarah, you know, wh- if, if you think back to your relationship with your parents, your caregivers, what was the thing you wanted for them more than anything else in the world? I think their, their respect. Mm. And what did that mean? Cause, cause like, normally in a patriarchal fa- power structure, that means, you know, I am the parent and you will respect me. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did that mean to you? I think I wanted them to see and like, I, I will say, I didn't grow up in a highly patriarchal mm-hmm. structure or authoritarian structure mm-hmm. at all. And there was a lot of like, like my parents, I, I think one of the things I'm most grateful for is that my parents really were like, I, they didn't want to squash whatever spice I had. Like I was this <laughs> kid and they were like, yeah, I have like this story. My mom tells us all the time, but like in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher called her and was like, Sarah won't put her car or Sarah won't put her coat on to go to Carline and we're t- holding up the whole class. And I grew up in Minnesota, so it was cold. Uh-huh. It was very cold. <laughs> and my mom was basically like, okay, so she will probably put her coat on when she gets outside because it's cold. So just go, just go out without the coat. She'll figure it out. And like my mom wasn't going to sort of reprimand me and like as a you know kindergarten or like make it about well Sarah's needs to kind of obey it was kind of like well mm-hmm. just, she'll get there just do what you need to do and not she didn't so she would push back on those things and you know and that was like the ni- early 90s like that wasn't very common back then and so I actually got real lucky in that respect but I think for me where I think I like to answer your question when I think about, I wanted my parents' respect, I wanted them to be interested in what I was in. Like, I wanted them to be curious about my mind, you know, mm-hmm. like to like spend time talking about stuff that I was interested in. Yeah. And so if I can translate that into a need, right, your need was to be seen and heard and known and understood for who you really were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, that's what all of us want. I I would have been shocked if you had said something that led to another need. (laughs) Because yes, we have other needs, but at its core, we all want to be seen and heard and known and understood by the people who are closest to us. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what it means to be human. And if we have that, which it sounds as though, based on what you're describing in that interaction, your your mom was willing to go there, right? Your mom mm-hmm. was willing to say, you know, I see what society is asking Sarah to do, and we're not necessarily going to unquestionably accept that. <laughs> and, and and so your mom is, is really kind of heading in that direction for you. It sounds as though maybe there was a, a piece of it that you wished that she had seen and known and understood that, that wasn't fully fulfilled, um, but that she went a long way in that direction. And I I think that 
when that is in place, when we have that security of knowing I am okay as a person and I know that I'm okay because I see it reflected mm-hmm. back to me from my caregiver, that my caregiver gives me this consistent message, you are okay, you are lovable just as you are, then all of the rest of it falls into place. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I think it's so funny because like I think that dynamic existed with my parents really easily. They got that. I think it was with other adults where that was not so easy because most adults in the 90s did not follow that model. And like mm-hmm. I didn't do the things that they always wanted me to do because I also had parents that were like, you don't have to. Like you do you. And yeah. and I think that's a huge reason that I am as confident and like willing to take risks in the way that I am today. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be that way if it weren't for that. So like, it's very powerful to have parents who will allow you to kind of piss off other adults, (laughs) which is (laughs) counterintuitive to this idea that we, you know, from what your point in your book is the patriarchy or capitalism or white supremacy is that's threatening. Yeah. And most parents internalize that threat. It's legitimately scary to allow my child to go out into the world and piss off other adults by asserting their power. And and that's in a white family, right? Right. (laughs) You know, it was a brown child doing that. That would not have been as safe for me to do that, right? So, but still, I think parents internalize the threat. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I understand that, right? It does feel scary to... When I talk to parents about like, okay, kid, your kid's on the playground, they just hit another kid and you are going to go and co-regulate with them. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of anxiety that I, and, and understandable, but yeah, but then all these parents would be really mad at me because I didn't discipline my kid and this other kid got hurt. I'm like, yeah, they might be, but that's, you don't, you don't have to tune them out right now. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Very difficult. I mean, it's it a is. big ask for parents because because yeah. they are, they do have to like both do the thing they're trying to do in parenting consciously and effortfully, but also hold space for the discomfort of all that internalized fear that this is really threatening. This is really dangerous. It's a lot. It is, yeah, and it, it tends to be more when you start. And I I think of it kind of like when I first started to say the word vulva, (laughs) right? When my daughter's, I don't know, a year old or so. And and I did an episode on using anatomically correct body parts. And I started to say vulva and I would say it in a really, you know, vulva. (laughs) Have you watched a vulva? And so, and I would go bright red when I would say it to her. She's (laughs) in the bath. (laughs) Like, what is going on here? And and then the more I said it, the easier it got. And there was a long time where my husband just would not say it. And by the time she was probably three, he's shouting from one end of the house to the other, did you wash your vulva? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I sort of liken it to that, right? It's really hard when you first start doing it. Mm -hmm. And it gets easier the more you do it. And and I'm sort of hearing the implicit question from parents who are thinking, but, but how will they ever learn, right? How will they learn that it's not okay? 
And my response to that is firstly, your child knows that it's not okay. There's not an absence of information here, right? Your child has probably already been told 300 times it's not okay to hit. Telling them one more time it's not okay to hit is is not going to solve any problem here, right? Mm -hmm. They hit for a reason and we don't currently understand what that reason is. Maybe they do have unmet sensory needs and they're getting jostled as they're leaving the classroom on the way out to the playground. And that just, you know, is, is so overwhelming for them that they can't help themselves from lashing out. And if we can see that need and we can say, okay, what if you stood over here away from the other children while we're going out so that your body is safe and protected, and then we can all go outside and and there won't be any hitting, right? And there was no need to teach the lesson of hitting is wrong. And so that's the first part of it. And the second part I think is, is sort of this, this uh, analogy that came up in the interview that I did with Dr. Chris Niebauer on his book, No Self, No Problem, which was just transformational for me mm. in terms of seeing that, I mean, at the end of the day, all of this stuff we're doing is really kind of just like a game. <laughs> None of it really matters <laughs> in the grand scheme of the world. And so the analogy he uses is sort of being like watching your kid's football game. And you can see that it's just a bunch of kids running around on a grassy field, kicking a ball from one end to the other. And it doesn't matter if it goes in the goal or not. <laughs> and that doesn't stop you from being invested enough to cheer for your kid. But you can also kind of have this sense of, yeah, they may win, they may lose. It's going to be okay either way. And, and so if you can kind of approach these situations from that perspective of, it's going to be okay. And, and, and helping your children to understand that as well, right? As um, your parents uh, may, were maybe doing is, is sort of teaching you that life is a game and you get to decide how you play along. <laughs> and there may be some situations where you don't necessarily respect this person's authority, but you recognize it's just going to be easier to go along with what they're asking. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you choose to do it even though, you know, you don't fully agree with what they're asking you to do. And maybe there are other times you're like, no, that is not okay. <laughs> and you get to make that choice. And so I, I think that when we approach life in that way, it brings a real degree of equanimity, which means kind of you don't get pulled around by your feelings as much. Not everything seems like an emergency that has to be fixed right now. Yeah. It's just, okay, yeah, this is hard right now. I can get through this. We, you know, everything will be okay. Yes. I think about this a lot when I talk about parenting and discipline, because I think parents have this intense pressure that's coming from the real pressure that's coming from the outside, as well as real pressure that's coming from this internalized mm -hmm pressure inside of us that we've, you know, built up over the generations, but that we're supposed to parent in the moment or we're supposed to parent like immediately. Mm -hmm. Like there, otherwise we've failed, yeah. right? It's our responsibility to parent immediately. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I spend a lot of time actually working with parents to un understand that and dismantle that belief a little bit because it is, it creates so much urgency and anxiety in the moment. Um, and why, do, where does it come from? Why do you have this belief? It's your responsibility to parent immediately. Um, and what does that even mean? Right. <laughs> I think parenting, if I were going to replace the discipline piece, I would think about replacing it with create safety yeah, we have to create safety in the moment immediately, mm -hmm. 
right? If our kid hits, we have to make sure everyone's safe. We got to keep them from hitting anybody else, right? That's our job. That's parenting immediately. Mm -hmm. You don't have to teach immediately because teaching works better when you do it when their prefrontal cortex is online, which only happens when their nervous system is in a state of sympathetic arousal or or just feeling safe and calm and non-threat. But they hit, so they aren't. So we have to then move them from threat mode to safety mode. Once they're in safety mode, then we can teach some things. But I think a lot of times parents are using the right tools, but they're just using them at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a, a key idea that I pick up on the, in the book is that if you're trying to understand what your child's needs are in the moment, it can be kind of hard (laughs) that when, for example, your child is hitting their sibling, that's a difficult point at which to try and figure out what their needs are. Especially if you are parenting with all the other things in their nursery, right? And, and maybe you had a difficult relationship with your siblings that you're kind of casting your mind back to and thinking, well, if I don't fix this right now, then, you know, my oldest is going to beat up on his brother forever, just like my my older brother beat up on me. And so I have to stop this right now. And so if we can instead, of course, go into the room, I mean, ideally we would have seen this coming. Yeah. I mean, so, so often it's possible to see this coming when we hear the tone in our child's voice shift, or we know that little brother has been kind of, you know, rattling the cage has been asking for things that the older, older sibling is, is finding difficult all through the morning. We know that something's coming. And when we can step into that situation before Mm -hmm. the meltdown actually arrives, we're going to be in a much better place. And then once we step into it, what do we do, right? It seems as though we have to discipline in the moment. You you stop doing that. You had it yesterday. Give it back to so-and-so. If instead we can step in and say something like, oh my goodness, it seems like we're all having a really hard time right now, <laughs> assuming you know I'm dysregulated as well. And then yes, we're picking up any small sibling who appears to be in any sort of danger. And then maybe we're just standing there not saying anything. If we mm-hmm. can, maybe we can sit down and not say anything and take some deep breaths Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just be together and co-regulate together. Right. And then as we become more able, what was it that you were trying to do? Oh, you were trying to build the tallest tower ever, right? Need for competence. What were you trying to do? Oh, you wanted to help your need for connection or, you know, whatever was going on. Let's see. Is there a way that we can imagine that we can meet both of our needs? And, and so that, that comes from that place of being regulated and we can allow the space for that to develop. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to happen in those difficult moments. Yes. I love that so much. If people are, you know, wanting to learn more about your work, get this book or <laughs> hear about your podcast or your amazing like courses and, and all of the stuff that you have for parents, how can they connect with you? How can they find you? Yeah. So the book, I think, will be available by the time this episode goes out. And that so you can find all the information on it at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash book. I'm doing a West Coast tour in the end of uh, 2023, hopefully maybe extending to the East Coast in 2024. And I'm doing a whole bunch of workshops with parents, with teachers at preschools, at schools, um, in, in church organizations, you know, a whole bunch of different places to help them really bring the ideas from the book to life. Uh, we also 
also have bonuses available, how-to videos, that kind of thing when you when you order. And so all of that's available at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash book. And then, yeah, the other thing is if, if you're listening to this and you're kind of on board with the idea, okay, I know that needs are important and I don't know what my child's need is, <laughs> yourparentingmojo.com forward slash quiz will get you to probably one of the needs they're trying to meet over and over and over again. And when you can understand that need and meet that need more often, everything else gets so much easier. That's such a great resource. And and also for anyone who is not already listening to your Parenting Mojo podcast, definitely, <laughs> definitely should because it's so good. Thank um, you. And thank you. Thank you for coming on. This was fantastic. I loved, loved talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. That was really fun. If you are feeling frustrated, overwhelmed, at your wit's end, or finding yourself constantly engaged in a power struggle roundabout with your child, you do not want to miss my free masterclass, From Battles to Bonding, Overcoming Power Struggles. By understanding precisely how to reverse engineer a power struggle and how to use the right tools at the right time, you can foster a happier, more cooperative relationship with your child while strengthening your parent-child bond. So go to drsarahbren.com forward slash power struggles to grab your free seat for my live masterclass on Tuesday, September 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash power struggles. Thanks so much for being here and don't be a stranger.